All right, we'll go ahead and get started anyway. I'm sure maybe a couple more will work their way in. Um, what I'm going to do today, normally I do Wednesday as lab day. I don't really have a lab that works for this without doing essentially the same thing we did last time. And I didn't really want to do the same lab again. So what I'm going to do is make today lecture day and then next week we'll probably do split and do two labs. So that'll let me get caught up through some material I need to do the labs that we can actually do labs that tie in better with the material. So if I can get through gravity today, which I can if we lecture the whole time or at least get to gravity, then we can do a lab that involves gravity the next time. So if you're planning on a lab, sorry, don't get all excited, you know, or, or disappointed that we're not having a lab today, but we will next week. Unless I end up further behind, end up further behind, but I don't foresee that, so we should be pretty pretty good there. Um, Assignment-wise, the extra credit assignment for the uh, podcast. If you're subscribing to either the YouTube channel or one of the iTunes uh, links, is due today. So if you haven't done it already, a few of you have. You've already sent me an email. I've sent you back a picture. If you've put it up on uh, D2L, you should already have the credit. Should show there. Um, you should already have credit for that. So if you don't see it as of this morning, I did go through and check all those. Anything I had as of this morning, I believe I had gotten updated. Um, and I'll keep doing those through the day. The only key with that one is that you can still do it later for extra credit, uh, for partial credit. But that does require a response from me. So if I don't hear from you by like 7 or 8 o'clock tonight, you're going to end up being late. Because if you send me an email at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to be checking every, every hour to get up. And, oh, did somebody email me at 2 o'clock and, give, and reply to them? No, I'll reply it when I, when I get up. I'm, I'm actually generally up relatively early, so I might be up between 4.30 and 5 o'clock because that's my typical. But then you probably won't be up to get the response. So uh, send it to me early. Just send me the email. You still have till 6 o'clock to post it if it's done after 6 o'clock. You lose 10%, so you still get 13 and a half extra credit points. I still recommend doing it, because even if you get it done in the next two days, you can still get a decent amount of extra credit that may make a difference at the end of the semester. So if you haven't done that already, do make sure you get that done. Next time, uh, I'm going to ask you to submit a copy of your uh, data sheet for the observations. So for solar observations, I'm only looking for one. One successful, so not, no rainy day, rain, no shadow, doesn't count. You won't get credit for that. But as long as you could measure the shadow and we can, I can take a look at that and give you some feedback on it, that would be good. Again, as close to 115 as you can. I don't penalize you horribly for the first one. So if you make it at 3 or 4 o'clock, you're still going to get credit this time. But as we go through the semester, I'm pickier on it. So if you just have to get something so you get these credits, get something somewhere. Although the weather looks halfway decent, so we should be pretty good that you're at least partly cloudy-ish, so you should be able to find some breaks to be able to get one observation. And remember, you don't need to do the calculations. All you need is the date, the time, sky conditions, how tall your object was, and the length of your shadow. That's all I need on your data sheet for it. So that'll be next time. Just make a copy of it. If we're doing a lab that day, uh, if you just have your sheet, I can run and make a copy of it for you if you need me, if you need me to. Uh, while you're working on lab. Homework one, right now scheduled for the 11th. If we get through everything by Monday, that'll be great. If not, it will be due the following week. So plan on it being due the 11th. If you get a bonus, then do that. I do recommend that you look through those as we go. So 
The first five questions, we've covered that material. We'll be covering chapters two and three, a lot of chapters two and three today. So you'll be through most of the first 10 questions today. You've had the material. So you could actually work or at least sketch out answers so you're not struggling at the end to do all of those questions. And then the exam is uh, scheduled for the 18th. We're, we're, homework may have to change exam unless we get some monstrous cancellations or something for some reason, we should be fine. So exam will still be the 18th. Uh, that would be a lab day, so you'll have the exam, and then you'll have the remainder of the time to work on a lab. And just a reminder, if you didn't sign the attendance sheet, make sure you sign that before you, uh, before you leave so I give you credit for being here. All right, questions? All right, let's see if I can get the, there it is. Close that up and start with our picture for today. Uh, the spider nebula. And everybody sees a nice spider there? Maybe? No? Okay. I'm guessing this is supposed to be the spider with all these streamers being the legs coming out. So kind of one you know, of those big spiders with the big legs going. Maybe? Eh. You use your imagination. Somebody looked at it once and saw it like that, and the name stuck. Um, again, those are not the actual names that the astronomers use. I mean, they'll use them indirectly, but it actually has a formal name as well. Um, Spider-shaped cloud is actually named IC417. It's a catalog designation. Spider nebula sounds a little nicer, a little more interesting. Um, so it's got the spider and then the little one there. You've got the spider, you've got the fly. So a little tiny blob there represents the fly. So the picture then would be the spider chasing the fly. So astronomers and can be very inventive with some of these that they come up with. Uh, this is an example of an emission nebula. And we will be going over this uh, later on over the next, over the coming weeks. We'll talk about different types of nebulae. A nebula is really just a cloud of gas out in space. So what you're seeing here, you see lots of stars too, but all the glowing, the green, is actually gas. And in fact, it's hydrogen gas. And when you excite hydrogen gas, it glows red. So why is it green? If it glows red. Well, this was actually taken by the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is a telescope up uh, out in space, as you might guess from its name, and it observes in the infrared. So it's a false color image, right? If, we, if I put an infrared image up there glowing in infrared light, we wouldn't see it, right? Just like turning off all the lights, closing all the windows, well, guess what? You and I are all glowing in infrared, but unless we've got night vision goggles to change the sensitivity of our eyes, we're not going to see each other in the dark. So the infrared, it's in false colored, so it actually is, is uh, giving off infrared light as well, and that's what's glowing here. So hydrogen in the visible glows in the red, but it also gives off some infrared and other colors as well. But it's just gas that has been excited by young stars that form within it. So as the young stars form, the hottest stars give off lots of ultraviolet radiation, the ultraviolet radiation, high energy, excites the, uh, excites the atoms, causes them to glow, and then the atoms give off a lower level of energy. They give off some visible light, some infrared. And that's what we can actually detect. So just like we can't see infrared, we can't see ultraviolet light. Doesn't mean you won't get a sunburn when you go out at sun and when you go to the beach in the summer, but because the ultraviolet is still there, but you can't see it. So. We get to see, and we'll talk about the nebulae like this in star-forming regions once we get through kind of our introductory material. We'll jump out to talking about stars. But the other interesting thing is that not only are stars forming, 
but planets are forming there. So the one type of planet that we actually will talk about in here are planets outside our solar system and how they're forming. Something relatively new. When I, took the when I took this kind of class years ago, there were zero planets outside our solar system now. Now we're pushing 4,000. So, sorry, yeah? Um, how many, you said there's pictures every single day. Yep. Uh, how many of the pictures are actually accurate the color that this is inaccurate? Well, it's not inaccurate. It's just false color because you couldn't do anything else. Uh, it depends on the image. A lot of them are, uh, let's see, just to pick a couple. The one, yesterday's was a simulation. If you want to see a neutron star being destroyed by a black hole, you can take a look at that. Um, this is like this. Here's just a photograph. So lots of them are regular, and it will tell you in the description. It doesn't try to trick you or anything. They're very picky on that, that there's nothing wrong with modifying the images or using false colors or even combining multiple images together as long as you say you're doing that. So something like this is just an ordinary photograph taken with an eight-second exposure up in the Alps in Italy. So a lot of them are regular, but depending, when you're looking at things like infrared or ultraviolet or x-rays, then you actually need to false color it to be able to see the actual colors. And that's why they'll actually tell you this is taken in the infrared, so we know that it's not actually the image. That's not what you, exactly what you'd see when you look at the sky. And in fact, that portion of the sky, it was this link. Looks more like that in the visible. This is close up on the fly portion, the little blob there, but you can actually see. I mean, there's, there's where you see the actual red color. So this was a picture of the day from 2015. Good. Other questions before we jump out? All right. All right. Now, if I recall correctly, and forgive me, I'm doing two classes using the same set of slides, so I get jumbled up. I thought we just finished chapter one and stopped. Am I? Did not jump onto two yet, correct? I'm thinking that, but I just want to make sure that I don't want to jump ahead and get, half, get, get halfway into a lecture and then have someone tell me, wait a second, you missed something. So we should have done, I think, the tour of the universe with the one slider that I showed you was the last thing that we did before the lab. Okay. Uh, let's see, so we want to look at this, and we're actually going to start on chapter two. We should get through chapter two and into chapter three today, which will give us a good setup to do a nice lab on, on Monday. Uh, this is actually, the first section here is looking at the celestial sphere. Celestial sphere, you see it anytime you go out at night. Celestial sphere is just a way of imaging the sky, a way of imagining the sky and looking at it as a great sphere around the earth. We know it's not. This is actually what the ancients thought, was that there was this great sphere out there, big sphere surrounding the earth, crystalline sphere that held the stars. Well, we know that's not correct and that the stars that we see are all at different distances, but in terms of visualizing things, it works perfectly because when you go outside, that is how things appear. So it's a way of visualizing the sky and accounting for the movements of stars, planets, comets, any other object on this sphere. It is also Earth-centered. Well, that's because we're on the Earth. You could make a celestial sphere if you were on Mars. It'd be slightly different than the Earth's. Um, so you can have, though, have that as you, go, as you go through. You could do it from any place in the 
in the universe. You would ha- any other planet, if you're on that, or moon, would have a slightly different celestial sphere and positionings would be slightly different. All right, so what is this celestial sphere? And don't remember, you don't have to try to copy down. If you want the slides, all of these lecture slides are up on uh, D2L for you. So if you're missing anything or if I'm going a little too fast when we get to some of the slides, don't forget that you can get it all there so you're not actually missing out on anything. Uh, But what is the celestial sphere? Well, this is an example of it. There we are here on Earth. And what we imagine is everything in the sky is stuck to this big sphere. It's not reality. But it works for determining things like positions, where, is, where are these objects going to be. It works for pointing telescopes, that if we want to point a telescope out in this direction, that we can do that. We can find coordinates. And I'll talk about coordinates up in Chapter 4, so you can actually look at those. But we have coordinates, ways to point a telescope to a specific spot on the sky. Um, what we use with the celestial sphere is extending the coordinate system that we use on the Earth. So we take the North Pole of the Earth, for example. So imagine you're at the North Pole and you, set, you imagine that straight, heading straight out to the sky. Where that North Pole intersects the sky is now the North Pole of the sky, or what we call the North Celestial Pole. You can do the same thing with the South Pole. Head that straight out, where that intersects will be the South Celestial Pole. We also have the Earth's equator, right? Imaginary line running around the middle, dividing the Earth into a northern and a southern hemisphere. Well, we can do the same for the sky. If you just imagine that equator stretching out into the sky, where it intersects would be then the celestial equator. So you have two poles on the Earth and an equator. You have two poles on the sky and an equator as well. One thing that you don't have that's a little bit different is this red line known as the ecliptic. That doesn't have a counterpart on the Earth because that is the path the sun appears to take. We know it's really the Earth moving that causes all the motions, but we don't see us moving. So if you watch the sun over the course of a year, not over the course of the day, over the course of the day it rises and sets and stays pretty much in the same spot relative to all the other stars. But over the course of a year, it slowly wanders through the constellations. You know most of these constellations of the zodiac, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, etc. Well, why are those important? Not just for astrological reasons that we'll talk about in in a section coming up, but they're important because they're the 12 constellations that the sun moves through. So that's why were they important to the ancients? Because they were the constellations that the sun moved through and the planets and the moon, so these must be important. When we look at them, you'll see most of them are really, really pretty weak constellations in terms of stars. There's not lots of bright stars there. You know, Orion is one of the ones loaded with bright stars. It's not a constellation of the Zodiac. It has lots of bright stars. So the constellations of the Zodiac were important not because of their, bright st- of their brightness of stars, but because of where they are positioned in the sky. We'll look at that a little bit uh, later as well. And the last one here, again associated with the ecliptic, is the vernal equinox. Vernal equinox is the position of the sun on the first day of spring. So we're coming up to the autumnal equinox here in a couple of weeks. Those are all specific positions on the sky. So the vernal equinox and the autumnal equinox are the two points where the celestial equator and the ecliptic cross. You've got two circles 
In three dimensions, they can intersect at, at most two places. So they intersect once here, around March 21st generally, and they intersect again around September 21st. That's when the sun is changing, going from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. So in a couple of weeks, the sun is right over here right now on its yearly journey, and it's slowly moving down, and it's getting lower and lower. So it's going down, it's crossing the equator in a couple of weeks, and then it will get lower and lower over the course of the semester. You'll see that in your observations. If you make an observation now, get one in for next week, you'll get a decently short shadow. Sun's still pretty high in the sky. It's getting lower and lower. When you make one in November, sun's really low in the sky, your, your shadow is going to be much longer. Much, much longer. In fact, right now you should find your shadow to be shorter than your object still. If you make one in November, it'll be the other way around. It'll be one and a half or two times longer than your object. At the same time, still making it at noon when the sun is highest in the sky. So these are just the definitions. I gave you a bunch of these on the previous one, and I talked about them, so I'm not going to go through them all again. So celestial pole, celestial equator, ecliptic I talked about, and the vernal equinox. And I said there's also an autumnal equinox as well that we're coming up to. The two that I didn't mention that I wanted to talk about a little bit here are the zenith and the horizon. These are parts of the celestial sphere as well, but the celestial pole is the same for everybody. Where the celestial pole is in the sky, relative to all the stars, it doesn't matter whether I'm here or on the equator or in the southern hemisphere or in California or in Hawaii or in Japan, keep working around the world. Wherever you are, the, the poles and the celestial equator are exactly the same for everyone. It makes it a great coordinate system. So astronomers can communicate with each other where things are and use the coordinates of the, cel the celestial coordinates to be able to determine that. But more locally, it's not normally what you'd use. You're not just going to pick out where something is relative to the pole. Usually you pick it out where it is relative to your horizon. So your horizon, right, we know what the horizon is, right out at the edge, where the sky meets, meets the earth, that's your horizon. Um, the zenith is just the point straight overhead. But those depend on where you are. So if something is straight overhead for you, it's not straight overhead for everybody. Okay, it is for all of us here. If we all go out in the, in the parking lot at night and look up, we're going to see the same stars straight overhead, whatever it happens to be at that point, or whatever star is close. It's going to be the same. Even, you know, assuming people are not driving hours and hours and hours to get here each day, if you go home and do the same thing, it's not going to change drastically. But if you've got a friend out in California and you call them about a star that you see, bright star you see straight overhead right now, they're going to see something different. They're going to see it. That star is not going to be overhead to them. Right? The earth is curved. So what's overhead for you? Guess what? They're over here. Overhead for them is off in this direction on the sky. So it's going to be different for everybody. Technically, it's different for you and me even standing here. But you're not going to notice that difference. When you start moving across the country or around the world, it does. And we know that, right? It's daytime. Sun's out right now. But not everywhere. Right? If you're on the other side of the world, guess what? It's nighttime right now. So the sun is not up. That's because different positionings of objects on the sky are going to be different depending on where you are. So for us, the sun is above the horizon. 
not everywhere in the world, right? If you're out in California right now, uh, probably hasn't risen yet. Certainly not if you're out in Hawaii. Sun has definitely not risen yet. I'm not sure. Three hours. Was the sun up three hours ago? Probably getting close. It was about 6.30, I think it rose. So if you go back there, sun would not quite be above the horizon there. Certainly if you go out to Hawaii get, to get the point, it's not, the sun is not going to be above the horizon. So what we see here is going to be different than what we see elsewhere. So those are kind of the coordinates. That's how you'd point something, how we'd point something out. Oh, there's a bright star on the horizon, either rising or setting. There's something straight overhead or somewhere in between. So that's one set of coordinates that we can use, but it does depend on where you are. So an astronomer here saying, oh, I see a star, and I see something unusual at this location, so far up above the horizon, so far from the pole, doesn't help somebody around the world. That's why we use these coordinates, coordinates to be actually be able to determine that. Now what this means is that we get some interesting types of stars and we call them, so we call circumpolar stars because the pole, right, if you're standing on the pole of the earth, everything's spinning but the pole stays in the same spot. It's kind of like the top of a ball. You spin it, the, ball, the top of the ball stays in the same spot. It doesn't move. So all of the stars are just making little circles around the pole. This is an example of an image of star trails. All you've got to do First of all, you've got to find a dark site. You don't want to do this in a parking lot where you've got bright lights around or anything, or in a city where you've got a lot of bright lights. But all you've got to do is point a camera at the sky that you can leave the shutter open for an extended period of time, five, ten minutes, and you'll be able to see something like this. Maybe not quite as long trails. might be a little bit longer uh, exposure. That's maybe more like 15 or 20 minutes. But even just a few-minute exposure, you can see that. You also need a tripod. Because no matter how hard you try to hold the camera steady, you can't. So if you're doing it with your arms, you'll be shaking everything all around and that'll move. But you can easily get images like this. This doesn't require any special equipment. So we're seeing the stars move. Now, actually, what are we seeing? Earth. That's the daily rotation of the Earth causing this. If you, had, if you could leave it open for 24 hours and the sun didn't rise, you'd get a complete circle. All of these stars are making circles around the pole right there. So that is the North Celestial Pole would be the very center of this image, right there. There's a relatively bright star close to it. Polaris, one of the stars sometimes people have heard of. Polaris is the North Star. It's the 50th brightest star in the sky. Reasonably bright compared to considering there's thousands of stars, but nowhere near one of the ex extreme brightest stars in the sky. It's important because, like the constellations of the Zodiac, where it happens to be located. It happens to be located very close to the pole, which means we can see it. We can see where the pole is. It illuminates the pole for us. Right? The pole is invisible. There's nothing there. It's just a point in space, just like there's no, you know, unless we put some kind of marking at the North Pole of the Earth, if you're just the first traveler up there, guess what? You have to have other ways to figure out that you're getting there because you can't actually, there's no actual marking there, no way to tell that you would be at the exact pole. So all of these circles mean some of these circles, depending on where the pole is in the sky. Remember, it doesn't move. So if the pole is right there, it's right there now, and it's right there tomorrow, and it doesn't budge. So with all these stars making circles, the ones that are close to the pole make little circles. They never cross the horizon. They never rise. They never set. They're always visible. The Big Dipper is one of these for us. 
You can find the Big Dipper any time of year. Sometimes it's high in the sky, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's here or here. It's always up above the horizon. You can sit there and watch it all day long. You'll never see it all night long. You'll never see it get above or below the horizon. It's too close to the pole, so it just makes a circle, gets high in the sky, goes down, gets low, skims the horizon, and comes back up. That's what we mean by a circumpolar star. It's always visible. So certain stars and any other objects in that area will always be visible. If you go further along, if you imagine this is your horizon, some stars will cross the horizon. So that we can, some will rise and some stars will rise and some stars will set. It depends on their positioning relative to the pole. And it depends on where you are on the Earth. Because where the pole appears relative to your horizon changes. Remember, those are local. So where the pole is depends on where you are. That was really important long time ago. Not so much now. Right? We've got GPS satellites all over the place that can pin your location down to what? A few feet, a few meters, relatively easily. A hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago, we didn't have that. So how did you figure out your location? Navigation was all astronomy. That was one of the earliest reasons astronomy actually got started was for navigation. There are a couple others we'll talk about coming up. But the altitude, how high that pole is above the horizon, tells you your latitude. So if you're at a latitude of about 40 degrees, roughly where we are, then the pole is going to be at 40 degrees above the horizon, almost halfway between the horizon and the pole. Makes it very convenient. Not such a big deal if you're traveling across country. You've got all sorts of landmarks. How about when you're traveling across the ocean? Sailing across the Atlantic, sailing across the Pacific. How do you know whether you're going too far south, too far north? I mean, you could, you could start heading west across, say, from Europe to America or America out to Asia. You can usually keep heading west. You can get a pretty good feel for that. But how do you know if you're drifting too far north or south? So are you going to end up in Japan if you're heading west across the Pacific? Are you going to head, da head down towards you know, Thailand? Are you going to head all the way down to Australia? How do you tell whether you're drifting? There's no landmarks out there. It's all ocean. So what was used was the pole star. And you could navigate by where the pole star was. So if you were trying to get to a latitude of 40 degrees across the ocean, head west, keep the pole star at about 40 degrees. If it started dipping, if you started getting it down to 30, 35 degrees or 30 degrees, you were heading way too far south. You knew you had to correct to go back north. If it started getting bigger and bigger, then you knew you were heading too far north and you had to correct back south. So it was really some of the very earliest navigation that was done was using this by noting where the pole star was, where the north pole of the sky was, and how it was always consistent and how it was related to where you were on the Earth. So I've given some examples here. If you're at the equator, the pole will be on the horizon, just sitting there. So Polaris will be right off over the horizon, right off on the horizon, sitting there off to the northern horizons if you're on the equator. If you're at the pole, it'll be straight overhead, Anywhere in between, it tells you where your latitude is. And this actually is correct for these two, because if you're at the equator, your latitude is zero degrees. That's what we define the equator to be. And your altitude would be zero degrees. You're not above or below the uh, horizon. Same thing with the pole. 
you're at a latitude of 90 degrees up at the North Pole, and the star is then 90 degrees straight overhead. The interesting thing is that if you go south of the equator, the North Pole's gone. Still exists, but it's below the horizon. The Earth is blocking you. You can't see it. Go down to Australia, South Africa, South America, look for the Big Dipper. It's going to be hard or impossible to see, depending on exactly where you are. Maybe it'll skim up over the horizon once in a while. You won't see it. You'll see a whole bunch of new stars that you never got to see, but you will not see things like Big Dipper. You certainly won't see Polaris. And the Little Dipper, if you go even a little bit south of the equator, they're gone. And of course, some of that's assuming that you've got beautiful horizons, right? So if you're on a cruise ship, that works. If you're on a mountainous area, guess what? Your horizons are much more jagged. You're not going to be able to uh, see much there. So it's a good way to do navigation, a good way to do navigation as well. All right, motions on the celestial sphere. Well, we have a couple types of motion. We have a daily motion. If you watch any object on the sky, it's going to rise and it's going to set. So we'll watch an object, it'll rise in the east, get up higher in the sky, go down and set in the west. We're used to this for the sun. If you watch the moon, the moon will do the same thing. Right? Different schedule than the sun, but the moon will rise and set as well. Um, every other object, stars, constellations, galaxies, everything will rise and set. That's all the Earth. That's all our fault. If we weren't rotating, Everything wouldn't rise and set every day. If our rotation was longer or slower, it would be the, 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 the daily motions would be different. So that's all tied into the daily motion of the Earth. What I wanted to look at here is the annual motion. So the Earth is doing two things. We're spinning on our axis. At the same time, we're moving around the sun. So we're here, uh, let's see, we're here September. So there's the Earth right now. By the end of the class, we'll be out here in December. The sun will have moved about a quarter of the way around. Uh, sorry, the earth will have moved a quarter of the way around the sun. So because the earth is moving, that makes the sun move about one degree per day. 360 degrees in a circle, complete circle. 365 days in a year. So about one degree per day that the sun will move relative to the stars. It's slowly changing its position, and it's slowly changing through what I'm sure for most of you are very familiar constellation names. So it slowly travels through these. So right now, in September, if we look at the sun, it's off here towards Leo and Virgo. We can't see those constellations right now because if we go out and look, the sun's in the way. It's a little bit brighter than those constellations and the stars in them, so we can't see it. However, what we can see is what stars are prominent opposite the sun. So after the sun sets, we can look for the constellations that are rising. We can look for the constellations that are up highest and most prominent when the sun is way below the horizon in the middle of the night. So what we do see is we look opposite. This is a good time of year to see Pisces. In December, the sun will be out over here between Aquarius and Capricorn, but it's a good time to be able to see Gemini. So we can't really see directly where the sun is, but we can infer it by the motions and by looking opposite the sun in the sky. The only time you'd actually be able to see it would be during a total solar eclipse. If the moon, sun were blocked out, we talk about eclipses in a, uh, next week, then we'd be able to 
then we would be able to see the constellation that it's actually in. But it's not only the sun, but the moon will travel through this same group of 12 constellations. Planets will travel through this same group of 12 constellations. So they're all doing exactly, they're all the same. What that means is the solar system is incredibly flat, flat pancake. So when you draw a picture of the solar system, right? Did sometime elementary school or whatever, you drew the sun and you drew a bunch of circles on a piece of paper. That's really not a bad estimate to what the solar system looks like. You don't have planets orbiting at really odd angles. They're all pretty much the same in that same flat piece of paper. Slight variations, so they don't all follow exactly along each other and along the sun, but relatively small and small enough that they pretty much stay within the same group of constellations. Now, we also, when we watched objects, it wasn't only the sun and the moon, which really stand out, right? The sun, obviously, but the moon really stands out because you can see the little disk there when you see it. Not well, it's starting to see it. It's not in the evening. It's a nice little crescent moon in the evening right now. So get to, we've got another uh, most a week, a little about a week for a full moon. But there were, there were five other objects that moved through the sky as well. And those were the planets. When you go out and look at the constellations, if you look at the Big Dipper today, and you looked at the Big Dipper 10 years ago, or if you go look at the Big Dipper 20 years from now, it's the same. You see the same pattern of stars. They're the same from day to day to week to month to year to decade. Get really long times, they do change, but you've got to, get, you've got to start talking thousands of years the planets actually wandered among the stars. So the position of Mars, for example, in May, might have been over here in Capricorn in one constellation. And a little while later, if we jump ahead a few months to December and January, it's over here in another constellation. So the planets wandered. That's why these five objects became very important to ancient astronomers. They didn't behave like all the rest of the stars. They look like stars, right? You've gone out there and seen planets, whether you knew it or not, you've seen them. If you looked at any kind of bright object, Venus really stands out, but most of the others, most of the times if you see a really bright star, probably about three-quarters to 90% of the time it's a planet or an airplane if the lights are flashing. Um, but the planets also undergo a really strange motion. The sun and the moon don't do this. They undergo what is called retrograde motion. We're going to look at this more in the next chapter. But what they do is they go, they travel one direction, they stop, they turn around and go backwards in the sky, and then they head forward again. So the, for the couple months, they actually turn around and are moving in the opposite direction. That was tough to explain. How do you predict the motion of a planet? Right? The sun was nice and smooth. It moved through the 12 constellations of the zodiac, and you could predict where it was going to be you know, the next year or two years later. You, you knew it was going to be in the same spot. The planets didn't do that. So the planets didn't, uh, didn't show that. So there's something else we have to try to explain. Why do the planets make this little looping motion every once in a while? Um, the other thing I want to mention, and we'll come back to times later, but I like to put this in as a little aside. Uh, there were seven objects that were known that moved among the stars. Have you ever wondered why there's seven days in a week? It's, it's astronomy. Blame astronomers. Ancient astronomers, not modern ones. Why, are there, why aren't there six days? I mean, seven. What is seven? I mean, we can think of things like, okay, the month is 30 days. That's about the cycle of the moon. That's how the month gets its name. We know that the day 
right? 24 hours is how long it takes the sun to move. The year, how long it takes the earth to move around the sun. Well, there was the sun, the moon, and then the five known planets. So, had ancient astronomers, had Mercury been closer to the sun and they could not detect it, it'd be six days in a week. Or if they could have seen Uranus, Uranus is right at the edge of visibility with the naked eye. You really would have trouble finding it. You'd, have, you'd need perfectly dark sights and it would be tough to be able to find, but then there'd be eight days in a week by this because there would have been then more objects. So it really is only just a coincidence that we happen to have you know, seven objects that moved among the sky and then one was named in honor of each of these objects. All right, so I'll move on to constellations. I should talk about that a little bit more when we come to times. Uh, constellations. We've looked at some of them. I've talked a little bit about a few of them. Constellations have had two different definitions. There is the ancient definition. Ancient definition is just a grouping of bright stars named in honor generally of mythological figures, Hercules, Perseus, Andromeda, Cassiopeia, etc. So you've got all sorts of, uh, there, of, of figures there, and they're generally named in honor of those. And there's a lot of you know, stories that are attached to them. But they were just a grouping of bright stars. So Orion was one of the ancient constellations, but it was just the bright stars that make up the hunter. The modern definition is a little bit different. Modern definition is that we've just divided the sky into 88 regions, and every single part of the sky is in one of these 88 constellations. So you can compare it to you know, a map, say, of the lower 48 states. Wherever you point it at the map, you're in one of the states. So wherever you point out in the sky, I'm pointing to one constellation. Which one? I don't know without any reference points at this, at this moment. But you know, I'm pointing out to a constellation. If I point here, I'm at another constellation. Just like pointing at a map. It doesn't mean there's necessarily any bright stars nearby. Of course, if you're pointing to a map of the United States and you're pointing out west, you might point someplace nowhere near a big city. There might not be cities for a while, for a, for a long ways. It's still part of that state, as this is part of the constellation. Every part of the sky is part of one of these constellations. It's a way that then defines every part, of, every part of the sky is in one of these constellations. It's a very easy reference to where something is, that if something is in Orion, we know to look in the direction of the constellation of Orion. And there are more formal ways that we'll look at later to get uh, ex more exact, reason, more exact, um, more exact measurements there. All right, so finishing up this first section, um, celestial sphere is a way of visualizing the sky. What we see will depend on where you are. The pattern of the constellations will not change, but what's at certain locations will change. What's high in the sky, what's low in the sky, what's actually visible or not visible. And then the planets and stars, the motions are different. And that's going to be important. We'll see that coming up in, toward, a little later today when I talk about, the, talk about astronomy and astrology. Knowing that the planets moved was something very, very important. And then I talked at the end a little bit about the definitions and how the definition has changed. All right, questions? All right, well, we'll head out to um, ancient astronomy first. Um, I already talked a little bit about this. So navigation was one of the important things for ancients to be able to use navigation. The Polynesians, you know, did amazing work tracking down 
using the sky to be able to navigate. And you had to there, right? It's not, quite, not even quite as easy as going straight across the ocean. I mean, now that we know, right, we got the whole big continent in between Europe and Asia. If you traveled, you were going to hit somewhere. You can imagine here with a bunch of little islands, if you misnavigated and you miss your island, you could be traveling quite a ways out. So navigation was extremely important, and they had great ways of being able to uh, navigate using the stars. Um, the other was calendar. Right? We're used to days and weeks and months and years and all of that. That was all developed astronomically. And as I just mentioned, right, the day is astronomical, spinning of the earth. The, the week, seven objects to the ancients. The month, the motions of the moon, the year, the uh, rotation of the er revolution of the earth around the sun. It was all astronomically related. The one example of this was that, you know, you need to know when the seasons were. When was it time to do the planting? When was it time for certain religious festivals? Well, one of the things was here in Egypt, one of the they used was the rising of Sirius. The first time they saw Sirius rising at a certain point, at a certain time in the morning when they could start to see Sirius again before sunrise, it signaled about the time of year when the Nile would flood. If you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert there, the Nile flooding was quite important. Right? That brought life-giving water. You could start to plant things. If you start too early or too late, you, if you miss it and everything floods, you're in trouble. If you do it too early, then nothing's going, it's not, nothing's going to grow either. So you had to know the timing. And that's one of the things that they could tie in was that where Sirius was in the sky, one of the, the, bright, the brightest star in the sky, that tied in with the flooding of the Nile. Now, there were a lot of ancient monuments. I only do one of them here just for time's sake. Probably the best known, probably because it's the best known of them. Uh, Stonehenge, I don't want to imply that it's the only one. There there's are uh, hundreds of these around the world. Not all exactly like Stonehenge, uh, but Stonehenge is actually an ancient monument uh, over in England that was used, we believe, for a calendar. And in fact, if you stand at the center of it over here by the altar stone and look out across this long main uh, section of it and out in the distance here, there's another stone, which you cannot see in the image that I've done, that they call the heel stone that's way off in the distance. If you stand at the center and watch the sun rise on the first day of summer, it'll rise and, and sit right on top of that heel stone as it's going up. The only day of the year it will do that. So won't do it. If you go today, stand in Stonehenge and watch, sun will not rise or rise in a different spot. First day of summer, sun is highest in the, going to be highest in the sky. It rises furthest to the north, so it starts its journey a little further north, and it's the furthest it gets there. So it rises just, and it's all set up to do this. Now, we don't know exactly what they planned by it. We don't have an instruction manual for Stonehenge. But it just seems unusual that there'd be so many different alignments with the sun, uh, with the moon. This is the moonrise and moonset would be in a certain range. And they had all of, this all of this figured out. Did they do it all at once? No, this took thousands of years to build. What you see here isn't the original Stonehenge. Uh, there's actually some parts out there. There's some pieces that originally start out as wooden thousands of years ago, and the stones were actually put in later on. But it was all devised here around where somebody probably noticed that 
on the first day of summer or a certain day that the sun always rose in a certain spot. And then over the, over the centuries and the millennia, they put together the entire, uh, thing, entire thing here. Um, again, we don't know. They didn't leave us an instruction manual. So not a lot of, it's more, this is what we call archaeoastronomy, like archaeology. You know, you have, you have remnants of things to study, but you don't have the details. You don't have the instructions as to what, what was planned. What did they want to do with Stonehenge? And we don't know that. So I jump ahead then into uh, Greece, but I'm skipping a lot. There were a lot of these, not confined just to England. There's, several, there's others in Europe. There's plenty in North America, South America. The Mayans had a lot that was built upon the motions of Venus. Brightest star in the sky. We know it's a planet, but looks like a star. So brightest star in the sky, they had things that were all based on the motions of Venus as being their important object. Uh, Australia has some. China has some. Uh, China does their stuff based on the motions of Jupiter. Jupiter takes 12 years to orbit the sun. 12 signs of the, of the Chinese zodiac. Again, astronomy keeps coming back in all these things that you don't all necessarily think of. But yeah, what, what year is it? Well, there were 12 years. That was for each section of Jupiter as it was moving around the sun. So all of these motions were figured out you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. A lot of them, and a lot of things were done with uh, monuments like Stonehenge as ways of being able to track that. But I'm going to jump forward into Greece because now we have records. We have records from at least some of these astronomers that survived and remain to this day. So, for example, um, I will talk about some of these in more detail. This kind of just summarizes a couple of them I'll go back into in more detail. Uh, Eudoxus, I don't come back to. Um, he gave us one of the earliest models of the universe and how the universe worked. Very, very simple compared to what we think of today and compared to what I'll teach you over the semester. You had the Earth at the center, and you had all of the objects orbiting around the Earth and out to a great sphere of stars. And that was it. Essentially, at this point, our solar system was the universe. You had the Earth, you had Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the stars. And that was it. No, we, we didn't know anything about galaxies or nebulae or anything else at this point. All we knew was what you could see with your eye. So that was the ending of, the, uh, of it. I'll come back a little more to Aristotle, Eratosthenes, Aris, uh, skip Aristarchus. I just wanted to mention him. I mentioned him as one who actually was one of the first, the earliest that we know of, to have mentioned that the Sun is the center of the universe. We won't come back again to that till Copernicus in the time of the Renaissance. It suggests that the sun was actually the center of the universe. So he was one of the first to actually give us that. Uh, and then we know that based on writings of others that survived that mentioned that he had, he had suggested that the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth. You know, very early, working thousands of years ahead of his time. Turned out to be right, but of course nobody could knew, knew it at the time. The other ones I'm going to go through in a little more detail, so let me look at those. Aristotle really gave us the basis of our understanding of astronomy and how things move based on a couple of postulates that he gave. This was our foundation of planetary motion for over a thousand years. So from the time of the ancient Greeks until the time of the Renaissance, 1400s, 
started, but really didn't actually completely change until the 1500s, 1600s. Took, it took a long time for this to be able to change. So he gave us this, um, this model, and it was based on two postulates. And the Greeks were philosophers as well. I mean, back then, everything kind of merged together. You had philosophers and scientists, and it was all one and the same. So he's based on two postulates that said, first of all, the heavens are perfect. It makes perfect sense. Right? I mean, heavens, heavens are heavens. That's where God is. Everything is perfect in the heavens. Makes perfect sense if you're not trying to do testing. If you're not doing, we're not, remember, we're not up to like science and scientific method yet. So because of that, well, everything in the heavens then has to move in the perfect shape, which is a circle. Things don't move in squares or, you know, zigzag patterns. They're going to move in circles because the circle is the perfect shape. Everything is the same distance from the center. Remember, Greeks were really big on geometry. So circle is the perfect shape. Circles and spheres were what they used and everything moves at uniform speeds. These are postulates. If you had geometry recently, a long time ago, um, postulates are things that you take without proof. So you have to do this at some times. It's not a bad thing. He turned out to be wrong about his postulates, but we still use them today. I just don't want you to get the impression, oh, he's just, making, he's just taking these things. We still do it. Einstein did this, not with these postulates, but Einstein's uh, theories of relativity are based on the precept that nothing can travel faster than light. We don't prove it. It's that, it, his things follow. If light is the, universe, is the universal speed limit, then all of these things happen. Turns out it looks like he's perfectly right, that his postulate is correct. If we ever find something traveling faster than light, then we've got to find something that works better than relativity to explain motions. So I just, don't want, I just don't want you to get the idea that, oh, this is silly or bad, that we're just making posture, we're just making up ideas. We still do it today. You have to make certain assumptions that seem to make sense. In the long run, when you find things aren't matching, then you've got to go back and change your theories. That's the whole heart of the scientific method. Um, measuring the size of the Earth. The Greeks knew that the Earth was a sphere. So regardless of what some people will try to tell you today, the Earth is spherical, and we've known about it for thousands of years. So it's not that this was something new that came up in the Renaissance or anything. This is something that has been known for a long time. Eratosthenes, almost 2000, over 2,000 years ago, measured the size of the Earth. How did he do this? Well, not that different than what you're doing for measuring the solar shadows. What was noted is that at a city in Egypt known as Syene, on the first day of summer, you could look down a deep well and you could see the bottom. Now, if it's a long, deep well, not very big, the only way you can possibly do that is if the sun is straight overhead. Because if it's at a little bit of an angle, by the time you go down a deep well, the sun's going to hit the side. It has to be perfectly overhead. So he knew the sunlight was coming straight down here. But if you went up to the Mediterranean, to Alexandria with the Great Library, you found that the sun cast an angle of about 7 degrees. And they could use their geometry... Uh, set up a proportion here to figure out if we know this distance then, we know, what the, we know this angle relative to a full circle, if we knew this distance, then we could figure out the circumference of the Earth. And they did, and he got something, depending on your measurements, he got something to within about 10% of the size of the Earth. Now, talking 2,000 years ago, that's pretty good. Remember? We had a couple different things. First of all, how do you get the distance between two cities? 
can't drive between them and use your odometer and say it's so many miles or so many whatevers. You actually had to pace them off. So you had to have people on. Seven degrees of the earth is not a small distance. So it's a big distance to be able to travel through. That actually, I think this actually goes down a little further. It's, like it's out of Egypt now. It would have been considered part of Egypt at the time, but I think it's actually much further down uh, below that. So you'd actually be walking and pace that off to get the distance. So, you know, to get that off. And the other thing was that the units of measurement were different, meaning that we had, right now we, have, we measure things in feet. Well, one foot is one foot is one foot. Back then, you might have had different measurements in different areas. So what they were using for distance measurements, you know, it used to be all based on, you know, whatever the king's measurements so of the measure, length of the king's foot was one foot. Well, if the king changed, then guess what? Your measurement of a foot changed. So at that time, there were different measurements as well. So we don't know exactly how accurate he was. It's difficult to tell. But based on what we can guess, he actually had a pretty good determination of it. Um, Hipparchus, another one I wanted to mention, gave us a couple of things. First of all, he gave us magnitudes, which I'll come back to when we start to get onto stars. I'll give you a little bit of a preview here. Essentially, what he did was divide the stars into six groups based on brightness. And he messed up magnitudes for everyone for the rest of, the, <laughs> for the rest of history. Not bad. I mean, it, makes, it kind of makes sense. He was just grouping. He was looking out at the stars and said, okay, these 50 stars are the 50 brightest stars. They are stars of the first magnitude, the greatest stars. Then there's the next set. Here's a couple hundred stars that are, the, that are a little bit fainter. These are stars of the second magnitude, third, fourth, fifth. These are the stars I can barely see, and these are stars of the sixth magnitude. I think it makes sense what he did. He's just grouping them by brightness. However, when you try to quantify that now, that means that a star of magnitude 1 is brighter than a star of magnitude 6. So when we start putting numbers to magnitudes, it's backwards. The smaller the number, the brighter the star. We don't do that for other things, right? If I measure distances, you know, a distance of 1 mile is not more than a distance of 20 miles. Temperature of 50 degrees is not more than a temperature of 80 degrees. But in astronomy, a magnitude 1.5 star is brighter than a magnitude 4.5 star. Even though the number, so it's backwards. There's some other difficulties with that. I'm not going to go into that right now. We'll talk about that later when we get into stars. The other thing that he gave us was precession. Well, he didn't give it to us. It existed. He's the first to measure it. What precession was is that the Earth is spinning like a top. If you've ever watched a top spin, it spins really quick. But if you watch how it's pointing, it kind of wobbles around at a much slower rate. The Earth does the same thing. So the Earth spins really quickly once a day on its axis, but it also spins like a top, and its axis pointing changes once every 26,000 years. It slowly makes a 26,000-year revolution around the sky. That's where the pole is pointing. So the pole position is slowly changing over time. I think this one will show it. So if you watch the Earth there, it spins really quickly, but it'll go here, give it a second, and it'll run again. And it will change. Right now it's near Polaris, but it will slowly change. In 26,000 years, Polaris will be near the pole again. It won't always be near the pole. It wasn't always near the pole. Thousands of years ago, other stars might have been near the pole. Maybe this one would have been relatively close. I think that one's not too bad. Yeah, relatively close to the pole. 
out here in the future, there'll be another star here near the pole or here. There are times when there's not going to be any star near the pole. We're just fortunate in the northern hemisphere that there is one right now. So that's one of the things that he found was that the Earth is also spinning. This means that our coordinate system is constantly changing. It's small. You're not going to notice it except over long periods of time unless you're trying to use a big telescope and point things extremely accurately because where our North Pole is isn't a fixed point. It's changing. Be like changing the North Pole on the Earth and having it wander around. Well, if it slowly wandered down to us, now we'd be the North Pole. And that would change every, all the coordinates on the Earth. That doesn't happen. We're lucky here on Earth, right? Doesn't, that the North Pole is the North Pole. In the sky, it's not the case. It's slowly changing. Polaris is actually approaching its closest, so we've got Polaris for the next uh, about 100 years, and then it will start getting further and further away from the pole. So will you notice a change over a lifetime? No. Remember, it takes 26,000 years to make one circle. But it does have differences to what the Greeks observed thousands of years ago or what we might see thousands of years from now. Now, this was all put together. All of this was put together by Ptolemy to give us the great model of how things worked. Uh, Ptolemy was the second century, not BC, second century AD, and he put all of the details together. He put everything together and wrote his great work called the Almagest. I think I put that, I think I mentioned on the next one, or I think I mentioned on the earlier one. Um, his great work, number of volumes of, mater of material on how to calculate the positions of the planets. It was all based on what Aristotle gave us. So, heavens are perfect, everything is in circles, everything is at uniform speeds, the Earth is at the center, and we now have to be able to explain the motions of the planets. So how do we explain that retrograde motion? Well, what they did was to put the Earth here close to the center, I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. The planet was out here, so say this is the Earth, this is Mars. The planet orbited on this circle, while the center of that circle orbited around something close to the Earth. If you think about gravity, this makes absolutely no sense, right? No sense of, don't, we haven't gotten to Newton and gravity yet, so there was no concept of gravity yet. It was just, how are things moving in the sky? So, you know, what's here at the center? Nothing. It's a circle moving around a circle. There is the planet, it moves, but it explained the retrograde motion. Because when the planet was on this side moving this direction, it could appear to go backwards in the sky. Perfectly scientific because it makes predictions. You can predict where Mars will be. You can figure out how big this circle is, how big this circle is, what the speed is of this, what the speed is here. You can adjust those to fit the observations, to make it fit. So we'd be able to then determine the positions of the planets. So the epicycle is one. This is the epicycle. The deferent is the big orbit here. The other thing that was kind of a problem for this was the equant. In order to get things to work, the Earth wasn't at the center. It was close to the center, but it wasn't quite at the center. The Earth was here. This is the center of the circle, the main circle, and everything orbits around point B over here, which is opposite the Earth. That's what we call the equant. That was done to make everything fit, because one of the things we're trying to match here, remember what Aristotle told us? Everything's in circles, 
So we need multiple circles to be able to match the actual orbits that we'll find out about. And everything moved at a constant speed in the sky. But things don't move at constant speed. Sometimes they move slower, sometimes they move faster. So if you did this, sometimes you'd be a little closer to the object and things would move a little further away. Earth's here, object over here might appear to move a little bit slower. Here it would appear to move a little bit faster. It's all things that were done that were made to go with the postulates that we had, the beliefs that we had at the time to try to get everything to fit. So this was really the height, the peak of Greek astronomy. And this lasted for well over a thousand years as our way of being able to explain the motions of the planets, predict where the planets would be. If you think about that, our current models, if we go back to Newton, are only several hundred years old. So this lasted longer than Newton's stuff has so far, right? Newton's hopefully will continue on, but this has lasted a lot longer than that as our way of being able to predict. Um, finishing up here, um, after that, we come to the fall of the Roman Empire. So the, West, the Western uh, Europe went into decline, and not a lot happened in Western science during the Middle Ages. The Library of Alexandria was burned, and a lot of the works were lost. So some of the things we know, because there were a few, co there were a few things that were saved, um, Indian Arab astronomers actually saved some copies and made copies of some of these works. Remember what copying involved then, if you wanted a copy of a book? It wasn't downloading a copy. It wasn't making a photocopy. It wasn't printing a new copy. It was handwriting another whole copy of the book. So they saved some of these works and actually developed new things. Algebra was an invention of the Arab astronomers in order to be able to calculate things. Greeks didn't have algebra. Everything was geometric. So everything was geometrical proofs. So they developed things like algebra, and then these works returned. During the Renaissance, copies of these works made it back to Europe, and that part you know, helped to ignite the new, uh, the new thinking that we'll come up with here um, uh, in a little bit. So summarizing, what did we talk about for ancient astronomy? We looked at it for timekeeping. Navigation was really important. We looked at Stonehenge is one ancient monument. There are lots of others that, could have been, that were used probably for timekeeping, religious purposes, anything that involved knowing exactly where the objects were in the sky and exactly what the, what the calendar was. We looked at the Greek astronomers, geocentric model that lasted for a millennium. And in fact, in the last section of this chapter, we'll look at how that finally changed. And then we looked at how Indian and Arab astronomers you know, preserved and improved upon this work during a time when you know, Western science was in decline, no changes, and then came back and it helped, it helped ignite the Renaissance. Questions? Before I jump on to kind of a little aside here, your textbook goes into that I wanted to talk about for a minute, which is looking at astronomy and astrology. So if you ask an astronomer today about astrology, you might get a dirty look, or you might get an explanation as to why they're not the same thing anymore. Uh, but really, long ago, they were not that different. And I don't mean that long ago, I mean several hundred years ago. There was not a big difference between astronomy and astrology. So what we think of today, not what we think of, a typo there I got to fix. Um, 
We knew those seven objects that wandered through the sky, and they were given special significance. So could these seven objects impact people's lives? Well, we know those through the constellations of the zodiac. Again, we've talked about these. They should be ones that are probably familiar to you. They're not very bright constellations. In fact, Taurus has a nice bright star. Gemini has a couple bright stars. Leo has one. Virgo has one. Scorpius has a few. It's a relative, probably the brightest of the zodiacal constellations in terms of number of bright stars. Has one really bright star. Other ones that I didn't mention really don't have any. They have stars and stars that you can see, but they don't have those bright, prominent, standout stars that you'd see. They were important because the sun, the moon, and the planets moved through them. And again, I'm skimming through some of this because we've talked about a lot of this so we can move on. But the constellations change, and I talked about this. The Earth's motion is changing, so the Earth is moving, making the sun's apparent position change. So because we revolve around the sun, the sun appears to move through these 12 constellations over the course of the year. Because the solar system is flat, the planets and the moon do the same thing. They will all move through these same group of constellations. And what that leads us to is what was developed by these same Greek astronomers that we talked about. They were astrologers. They did horoscopes as well. So what it means is where were natal astrology means where were the sun, where where was the sun, the moon, and the planets at the moment of your birth. And that was supposed to determine everything about you, your personality, your fortune. That's the basis of astrology today, but it's quite different than what is actually used. Right now, astrology tends to be a couple lines based on your sun sign only. So if you're a Taurus, you look up this, you look up this online and it'll tell you, you know, a couple sentences about what your day is going to be like. A horoscope used to be quite different. So it used to depend on all of these things. In order to cast a true horoscope, you need not only the day you were born, you need the exact day, the time, the location, where, where were you born, that makes a difference. So somebody born here and somebody born in California on the same day and time will have different horoscopes. Because what's going to be rising or setting, Jupiter might be rising for you, but it won't be rising for someone out in California at the instant you were born. So if you could be born at the same date and time and you would have a different horoscope. So it really depends exactly on all of that detailed information. So we divide, now we divide the sky into 12 sections. These are the constellations we're familiar with. Uh, sun spends about one month in each constellation. It varies because the constellations aren't all the same size. So some of them are a few more weeks. Some of them are a few less. Uh, it might be a week more or a week less. But some things are causing this to change. Precession is one of the big ones. Remember, precession is changing our whole coordinate system. So that changes everything about the positioning. And if you calculate where the sun was on the day and time you were born, with a few exceptions, you will find that you're one, con- you're one sign off. So I do an example there. If you're on born in May 6th, calculate where the sun was. It was in the constellation of Aries that, uh, that day. Of course, if you know astrology, May 6th is a Taurus. So everybody is about one constellation off based on, the proces- uh, based on processional positioning that has changed things over the course of a thousand, thousand years since this has actually been done. 
What we really look at, if you look at your horoscope in the newspaper, or more likely now online, um, you're looking at just the sun sign. Where was the sun at that? So 8% of the population has the same horoscope pr prediction. Right? About, about one-twelfth of every, you know, one-twelfth would be Taurus. Every, all of those people would have the same, uh, same, uh, same horoscope. Really, what was done early on, it was a complete horoscope, and I'd mentioned that. You've got to use the sun. You know, where was the moon? Where were the planets? And where were they for your location? You have to do all that calculation. This is why they came out to be the same early on. What was an astrologer doing? Astrologer was calculating where the sun, moon, and each of the five planets were on a specific day, time, and location. That's what astronomers were doing, too. Calculating the positions of the planet. They were doing the same thing. So ancient times, early times, there was really no difference between the two because they were doing the same thing. The difference then comes in the interpretation. The astronomers trying to figure out where everything was, done. That's what we're trying to do. And the astrologer is saying, okay, now how can we interpret this? What does this mean that you were born at the instant Jupiter was rising? Or you were born when Mars was in Aquarius? Or you were born when, you know, what does that mean? There are some rules. There's also some interpretation and judgment. So you could have you know, five astrologers do the horoscope for you. You're going to get some differences because there is some interpretation on it as well. There's not specific rules as there would be in a science. So in a science, you'd say, if it was in this location, then this is the thing. There'd be something testable. When you start leaving things open to judgment, it gets very hard to test. How do you tell whether it's correct or not? And from the times that we've already talked about into what we're going to go over in a few minutes, they were really very similar. Some astronomers, and I know this jumps ahead because you, you probably have, you might hopefully have heard of Galileo. You may not have heard of the other two astronomers, Tycho and Kepler, that we're going to talk about. These were astrologers and astronomers. Galileo was an astrologer. He he'd cast horoscopes. I mean, in fact, he worked for the dukes or whoever, and one of his jobs was to cast their horoscope. And do, the, and do that. That was part of his job, in addition to being an astronomer. It wasn't really until the 1700s that they started to diverge. Um, there was a lot of differences early on. Isaac Newton, not so much an astrologer to my knowledge, but an alchemist, searching for the way to turn lead into gold. One of the big things that he was, that we was on, and something that we look at now, well, that's not possible, but it was one thing that he was really working on. So it wasn't that different than what people were doing here. They were astronomers and astrologers. Now they've started to separate. That's why if you ask an astronomer today you know, about astrology, depending on the astronomer, you can get dirty looks, a nasty response, or maybe hopefully, more hopefully an explanation as to why the two really are not the same. Astronomy is just studying the sky. Astrology is looking at the impact of our lives, of that on our lives here on Earth. So what we mean today, we sometimes call it, you'll hear an astronomer call us things a pseudoscience. A pseudoscience means that there's a basis in science for it. You're using scientific terminology, right? Astrologers will talk about retrograde motion, right? Mars was retrograde when you were born. That means something. If Jupiter was retrograde, that, that means something. I don't know the details, but I know that it, that would mean something different. But it's not based on any kind of rigorous testing, I mean, the whole idea, if you want to test astrology, is have cast the horoscope, make the predictions, wait, do they come true, do they not come true? 
And then you'd go back and make modifications. That would be the whole idea of science. But studies that have been done really show there's not really any relation between a horoscope and their lives. And in fact, if you read them, most of them are so vague that you can find, oh, yeah, that is, you find a little bit of truth in it. But nothing that's going to be, uh, actually be correct. So I just wanted to do a little aside on that while we were, uh, before we jump into the last section of this chapter. But astrology, we were looking at the study of the positions of the sun, the moon, the planets, and their impact on, the, on our lives. Astronomy, what we're studying in here, is just the study of the celestial objects. They were the same in the distant past. And by distant past, I'm only talking 500 years ago, four, five, 400 years ago. Not ancient past, but even just, a, just several hundred years ago, there was not that big of a difference between the two. And that ast astrology is considered a pseudoscience in that there's really nothing scientific about it except some of the things that are done as the basis for making the calculations. All right. Any questions? Before we jump on to our last section. Um, so now we're going to jump into modern astronomy, uh, the beginnings of modern astronomy, which really start with getting the idea that the Earth isn't the center of the universe. So this started back in the 1400s and 1500, 1400s, Nicholas Copernicus. As I said, the heliocentric was suggested by one of the Greeks, but not really seriously considered, so we don't consider that the beginnings. Copernicus is the one who suggested that the Earth was a planet. Ancients had five planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Earth was not one of those. We knew of the Earth. It wasn't that we didn't know of the Earth. It was, it was different. The Earth was special. We're here. It's not moving through the sky like all of the other planets. We know it is now. But he suggested that all of the planets, and that included the Earth, orbited the sun. And that was a way to explain some of the observations that we made very easily. In fact, it explains retrograde motion much better than Ptolemy did. Right? Ptolemy had that little epicycle, which was kind of circling around nothing, that just you know, isn't comforting to look at, especially for us today, because what is it orbiting around? It can't orbit around nothing. So retrograde motion can be explained in Copernicus's model. You've got planets moving around the sun. They're moving at different speeds. When a slower planet or faster planet passes a slower one, it looks like it goes backwards. Right? If you pass a truck on the highway, Truck looks like it's going backwards relative to the distant objects. Relative to those, as you're passing it, it looks like it's going backwards. We know it isn't. It's just going forward at a slower rate than you are. But that could explain retrograde motion. If the Earth passes Mars relative to the more distant stars, while we're passing it, Mars is going to look like it goes backwards. And could it eliminate epicycles? It actually couldn't because the only thing Copernicus changed about what um, Aristotle had given us was that the Earth was not the center of the solar system. The sun was. Everything still moved in circles. Everything still moved at constant uh, uniform speeds. So in reality, it actually didn't get rid of epicycles. He still needed epicycles to explain the motions, not retrograde motion. He could explain that, but he couldn't completely get rid of epicycles. This is an uh, image of his model from his early uh, his book, so what he had was the sun, then Mercury and Venus, then there's the Earth, the moon still orbited around us, then there's Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the sphere of the fixed stars. 
So as I said, the solar system and the universe were one and the same still at this time. Because there's all the stars, there's everything else out there that we'll be spending a big chunk of the class on. So everything moved around the sun, so it did do some things. So it explained retrograde motion very easily and in a more comforting manner. But it did make a prediction. And we're starting to get into the beginnings of science now. When you make a prediction, then you want to test it. Does it come true? And one thing it predicts is the parallax of stars. So it made a prediction. A great scientific theory will make a prediction that had not yet been observed that you can then test. So what was done was, what do I mean by parallax? First of all, is that when we're here, the Earth moving around the sun means we see things from different perspectives. So if the Earth is here and stars are at different distances, well, this nearby star is going to look off in one direction here. Six months later, when we're on the other side of the sun, we've moved. Now that star looks like it's off in another direction. Right? You're familiar with parallax. You hold your finger out and blink your eyes back and forth. Your finger appears to jump because you're looking at two different perspectives. If I walk, and walk across the classroom, student in the front appears in front of one student here, but if I walk across the room, guess what? All of a sudden, you're in front of a different student. I moved. You guys didn't move. I moved. But your positioning of those in the front is going to change a lot more than those of the positioning in the back. So it was a prediction that was made, and it took a while before this was detected. Remember, Copernicus was talking, he died in 1543. It took almost 300 years after he died before this was detected. So one of the problems, you know, why didn't we do it? It was made so much sense. We know it's correct. Why didn't it get accepted right away? Well, here's the proof. We were not able to measure it because it exists. The Greeks knew about it. The Greeks knew that this should exist if the Earth were moving. One of the reasons they thought the Earth couldn't move, wasn't moving. But the angle is so incredibly tiny. The angle is, for the nearest star, the angle is about one two thousandth the size of the full moon. So if you can imagine looking at the full moon and cutting it into 2,000 little pieces and measuring one of those with your eye, no telescopes, Right? We haven't gotten to telescopes yet. It's just not something that was possible to be able to do. Even the most accurate observations would not have been able to do that. So that was one of the reasons it was not so quickly accepted. But it did explain retrograde motion much easier. So how do we explain them? Well, here's what we had. I showed you the epicycles. This kind of puts it together. And if you look at just the motion of the red dot as it goes around the Earth, this is what you would get with that epicycle. It would appear to go around, it would come and loop in, and then it would appear to go out again, and it would keep doing this over and over again. So you would get that retrograde motion where this, the planet would appear to move backwards. The sun doesn't have an epicycle here in the yellow. So if you go around, you'll notice that they never match. They will never match up. Uh, to explain it in Copernicus's model, you've got the Earth moving quickly here, and as it comes by and passes Mars, it will then make Mars appear to move backwards. It doesn't really move backwards. Mars doesn't stop in its orbit and go the other direction. It's just an optical illusion. We're passing it, and it's going to look for an instant there like it's going backwards. In this case, that instant is a few weeks. It'll look like it's going backwards, and then we'll turn around and go forward again as we get further ahead of it. So it only appears to go backwards there as we pass it, 
And once we get far enough away, now it's going to look like it's moving forward again relative to the distant objects. So it could be explained in either method, but I think, at least to me, this is a lot more comforting. This seems a little more, uh, a little more comfortable than this really weird looping material, but either one could explain it. So we had to look for different tests that would be able to explain this. And one of the problems was that it was not immediately accepted. Well, one I mentioned, not predicted parallax. And we, you can go try to measure the parallax, and you can't do it. Not at this point. Now we can measure it easily. We can measure, measure parallax. Now we have satellites up that are measuring parallax for millions of stars. But it wasn't until 1838 that we got that first measurement. So the Earth wasn't moving. It doesn't feel like you're moving. We can't detect parallax. So one of the reasons that it was not immediately accepted was because of this. And one of the other problems was that it was no more accurate than the geocentric model. What do I mean by that? It was no more accurate in determining the positions of the planets. So if I used both models, and I predicted where Mars was going to be two years from now, and I waited two years and measured where Mars was, they'd both be off by about the same amount on average. So you've got, on one hand, you've got this model that you've been using for over a thousand years. You've got this brand new model. And they both give you the same accuracy. Are you going to switch? You're going to say, oh, this one, I'm going to take this new model. When it doesn't, if it gave you like 10 times the accuracy, well, that's great. But is there any reason that people are going to switch? You know, people don't like change. You know, change is resist. So if there's no reason that we have to change it, why would we not go with this model that we've been using for a thousand years in the absence of any other evidence? If there had been parallax, if it had been 10 times more accurate, that would have been better. And one of the problems was that he did continue this use of circular orbits. That was a big thing, and we're going to come back to that in the next chapter. Uh, what I want to jump to, we're kind of going to jump ahead into Galileo here, as your textbook does, and then we'll come back to look at the orbits uh, in chapter 3. Uh, Galileo, sometimes called the first scientist, uh, did a number of different things. He did some experiments of motion. So he wasn't, didn't do just astronomy. He actually did a lot of physics, too. It gave us the idea of inertia, that things don't like to stop moving. Things that are moving don't like to stop moving which is contrary to everyday experience, right? Because if I push something, it stops. Galileo said things don't want to stop unless there are other forces involved. And we'll look at that a little bit more with Newton. Right, we know today there's friction that slows it down. If you're driving down the road and you take your foot off the gas, you slow down. Not because you slow down, but there's resistance in the engine, there's friction between the tires and the road, and you're going to slow down. If you're out in space, that won't happen. So if you're flying a spaceship, you don't in, just out in space, once you accelerate up to your speed, you don't, need, you don't need any more fuel. You're going at a speed, you'll keep going at that speed. So kind of one of the concepts, and we're going to go over this a lot more when I talk about Newton in the next chapter. He also gave us that all objects accelerate at the same rate due to gravity. So if I drop two objects at the same time, they're going to hit the ground at the identical time. Again, contrary to experience, if I drop a hammer and a feather, what's going to hit the ground first? A hammer, right? We know that. But if you do that on the moon, with no atmosphere, they'll fall at the same time. I think I have that video clip to show you uh, 
when we did when that was actually done uh, coming up. I think it's actually in the next chapter. So he gave some of these things, and we're going to look at some of this later. I'll come back to this in the next chapter. What I wanted to look at here was the telescope. The telescope that Galileo did not invent. He heard about it, heard about this uh, Dutch optician who had made this device that you could put a couple lenses together and magnify things, make things look like they were closer. But he was the first to observe the sky with it and to record and publish his observations. So that's why he gets credit. He actually recorded, published. People know what he did. doesn't mean somebody else didn't point it at the sky first, but if they didn't tell everybody else about it, then nobody's going to know about them. But he did not invent the telescope. He didn't get one from this other uh, optician. He heard about what it was and made his own. He actually ground his own lenses, made his own small telescopes. Most of them were things about a half an inch in size, about a half inch little lens. And was able to then get, that, get a lot of information. And what he observed was a lot of different things. I'm going to give you the whole list here, and then I'll show you a few pictures over the coming uh, slides. He observed the sun. You know, what objects are you going to look at? You're going to look at the brightest objects you can find. So the sun. Well, you don't really want to look at the sun through a telescope, even a small one. But you can do things like you might have observed it at sunrise or sunset, or you can actually project things through the telescope and look at the image, and that's perfectly safe. But he did observe that the suns have spots. It's not perfect. Remember, the heavens were perfect. Everything in the heavens was perfect, moving in circles. The sun was not perfect. And he could observe that it rotates. That didn't really prove anything, but it did go against Aristotle's idea that the heavens were perfect. The moon, mountains and craters, it's not a perfect circle, not a perfect sphere, which is what the heavens were thought to be. Venus, when he looked at Venus, he saw that it had a complete cycle of phases. It was just like the moon. Went through a complete cycle of phases, went through a crescent phase, went through a full phase. This was a big one. This was a very big one because in order to get this, this is something that Ptolemy's model and Copernicus's model made different predictions on. But we couldn't test it until we had a telescope because we couldn't see that Venus had phases. But Ptolemy's model said it should always be a crescent. Copernicus's model said it will go through a complete phase, cycle of phases like the moon. So, big to all, what, so what this proved with this observation was that Venus had to orbit the sun didn't prove the Earth had to orbit the sun. You can still use some roundabout. They're going to be really weird considering gravity, but we don't know gravity yet. We're still before Newton. So we can explain, but we, so we, there are ways to explain this leaving the Earth at the center, but Venus had to orbit the sun. There's no way under Ptolemy's model that this could work. Jupiter, he found satellites orbiting it, four moons. Well, Everything before, either model, you, every, in the geocentric model, everything had to orbit the Earth. That expect, the Earth was stationary, everything moved around the Earth. How can something move, like Jupiter, without leaving things behind? Um, Saturn, he couldn't see the rings, his telescopes were too small, but it also was not perfect. It has these two big blobs on either side, sometimes there, sometimes not. And then the Milky Way. If you've ever spin out in a very dark site, you see this nice milky patch going across the sky. If you point a telescope up, it's made up of 
thousands and thousands of stars. And that means there are not a finite number of stars. Everything is not fixed up in the heavens. So some of his observations, I picture a couple of his drawings here. This is one of his drawings of the moon, showing some of the craters, some of the mountainous regions, lighter and darker areas. This was one of the big ones for the phases of Venus. He saw the crescent phase, but he also saw a full phase. Okay, that meant Venus had to be going around the sun. That does not work in the earlier models. And then uh, he observed Jupiter. These are observations of Jupiter, um, I think one each day, 10th, 11th, 12th. So there's Jupiter, the circle, and then the dots that he saw were the positions of the stars, as he called them, around it. So he observed these, and as he watched them over the course of days and weeks, you could see that they were following a regular pattern. You could actually track out their orbits. Sometimes you'd see three, sometimes you'd see four. They'd be in different positionings, but you could actually track out where they were and map out their orbits and find out, yeah, they're orbiting around Jupiter. They weren't just sitting there in one place. They were actually traveling around Jupiter. So this was the first observation of things that did not orbit either the sun or the earth, depending on which model you took. We knew things orbited something other than the sun or the earth. All right, uh, last thing to look at, I believe, in this section, I want to look at the uh, Galileo. So Galileo made all these observations. Um, he published in 1610. He published those. Uh, in 1616, any book supporting the heliocentric theory was considered as heretical, so not allowed, essentially, as by the laws of the time. I have to remember, this is a little bit different. We get so used to things, especially here in the U.S., you know, church and state are separate. This is back in Rome area, Italy. This was, there was no separation. Church and the, government, the church was part of the government. It was all together. So sometimes we get that, you know, we have to remember what things were like back there, that it was a lot different than what things are like today. In 1632, long after this, it's not that he didn't do much, but he was doing a lot of physics and other things in between, he didn't, and he still did do some astronomy as well. But he published a book, uh, a dialogue concerning the two, great, two chief world systems. His two chief world systems were the Copernican model and the Ptolemaic model. So, and he wrote this as a dialogue between uh, several different people, one kind of moderator and one person supporting each of the two models. And... He was eventually found guilty of heresy because he did defend, as he had agreed not to, uh, to defend the heliocentric view. Part of the other problems was that in his book, Galileo was, was not necessarily the most tactful person either. So, I mean, some things, I'm not, too, not giving the church no, no blame for it, it's kind of a lot, but he was not necessarily the most tactful. And what is interpreted is the way he put things together is that his person supporting Ptolemy was made a very simplistic, you know, dull-minded dull person and was interpreted as representing the Pope. So that, not necessarily the best thing to do at that time. Um, you know, probably could have done things a little differently and maybe not has gotten in quite as much trouble, but he was placed under house arrest until 1642 when he, when he died. So, again, you know, some, some of the problems were Galileo. Some were that you know, the church had given him some signs that he was okay to go ahead and publish this. So there was a lot of conflicting views. 
And of course, going back to the 60s, so much records is lost, we don't know exactly what went on. But we do know what happened later. Um, back in 1820, even before we measured parallax, the, the, the Galileo's book and Copernicus's were removed from the index of banned books, so they were no longer banned. But it wasn't until 1992 that he was formally cleared by the church and that his conviction was actually removed. So as I said, a little bit, you know, what were some of the problems here? There was no proof. He made a lot of great observations. He gave us some great circumstantial evidence that the earth was moving, but he didn't have, you know, it's, it's all circumstantial evidence. It's nothing definitive. That proof would not come for almost 200 years after his death. There were some other things going on. You know, the Reformation was not that far before this. A Catholic church was losing power. You know, generally, people, corporations, you know, governments that start losing power want to hold on to that. They don't, they don't like losing power. So there was a lot of internal politics going on as well. Anything that the church saw as weakening them, they were lashing out at, you know, trying to stomp it down. You know, maybe if they had done things differently, it may have made a difference. But it's that you know, seeing it from the hindsight of history, you could say, oh, this would have been better. Of course, when you're there, it looks different. You're scared. You're losing power. You've got to hold on to everything at all costs. And as I mentioned, Galileo was, you know, could be rather abrasive, so not necessarily the best thing to, best thing to do. And as I said, he portrayed those defenders as you know, simple-minded people. So summarizing here, again, and we'll finish up for today, we gave a, Copernicus gave us the heliocentric model that the Earth moved around the sun in a circular orbit. Sometimes you know, that's the Copernican principle that the Earth is not the center of the universe, and this has been come out later on, that first it was the sun the center of the universe, then maybe our galaxy the center of the universe, and then finally, as we'll find out, there is no center. There just is nothing at the center. So it's kind of the ultimate in the Copernican principle. The heliocentric model easily explains retrograde motion, but did require parallax, which could not be detected. I talked about Galileo's observations of many astronomical objects, and he gave us a lot of great circumstantial evidence. But there was no proof. He couldn't observe parallax. He couldn't observe other motions that would have proved that the Earth had to be moving. Now, whether he had, would those have been accepted? You also have to remember the telescope was a brand new instrument at the time. Do you necessarily take it, or is it distorting the view of the heavens? You know, there was an argument to that, till you could verify that the telescope was working uh, correctly. So there were some other things. So just be, even if he had been able to make those observations, it might not have made that big of a difference. So questions? Worked out good. We got through chapter two, which means I can start on gravity on Monday and then give you a lab to do that has to do with some of the, some of the gravity. So let me, if I can get this, put up your, in case you need your assignments back up there, there's everything. Uh, if you didn't sign in, make sure you sign in so I get your credit for being here today. Uh, and next time, I just need a copy of your data sheet showing at least one successful observation. So if you can't make a copy of it, you can photograph, photograph it or something, and I'll work out. We'll get a submission. I mean, that works fine, too. If you need me to make a copy of it, I can do that during the lab portion. I can just run down and make copies while you're working on lab. So otherwise, I think I said last time, have a great weekend. Have a great weekend again, and I will see you on Monday. <laughs>